And while you're turning, just a word about the Read, Mark, Learn study that uh, Jason mentioned. Uh, our men's groups, our Bible studies are going to be studying through the book of Hosea this coming spring. Um, ladies, you've got a different plan, but you're welcome to come to this leadership training and uh, learn Hosea if you'd like. Uh, and as Jason mentioned, the goal is to uh, teach you, walk through the book of Hosea with you, the leaders, so we're all seeing kind of the same main points that Hosea has been told to make by God. And then after that, we would then go and kind of prepare our own messages, and you would then teach them to uh, the groups that you're over. It isn't open to anybody who wants to come. Um, it is uh, Sunday the 8th of January, again, from 3 to 6, three hours, 3 to 6 p.m. that evening at the Adult Center on Rosser. Love to have you there. All right, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13, please follow along as I read. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Now these things took place as examples for us, so that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. I've entitled this message, How to Avoid Falling. How to Avoid Falling. In 1 Corinthians uh, 8, the people evidently had asked Paul, what about meat sacrificed to idols? Can't we eat that? I mean, we know that an idol is nothing. We know that it's not living, we're not worshiping that, aisle, uh, that idol, but, but eating meat in the temple is so much a part of the social life of Corinth, and it's part of business life and family life, and we're not worshiping the idol, but can't we eat meat there? And Paul rebukes them, saying, you're not thinking of your brothers and sisters who've been saved out of that environment. You're causing them to stumble because they kind of think, well, it's that person's doing it, maybe then I can do it when their conscience tells them don't do it. And so they're sinning against their conscience. And so in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul tells those Corinthian believers, he says, you're not just sinning against them in prompting them to go against their conscience, you're sinning against Christ. And so he talked to them about the importance of thinking through what you do based on how people around you might be affected by that. And then here in chapter 10, he says, by the way, be careful that you don't fall back into idolatry. That's the thrust of this chapter. 
You say that you're in Christ, but you can be led astray and fall back into sin and be destroyed. And this chapter 10, verses 1 through 13 is full of destroy, overthrown type of language. You think of even uh, in Jesus' life, think of uh, His disciple Judas who had a final fall, was overthrown, if you will. So again, how to avoid falling. And Paul gives us a number of exhortations in this passage that we should learn so that we're not those people that claim to be followers of Christ and then one day totally fall away, have a final fall, don't enter heaven. Now, to go through this passage, I think it's helpful for you to have some doctrinal um, maybe hooks to hang your thoughts on. So, before I dive into the passage, I want to give you some of those doctrinal hooks, okay? Uh, and just a heads up, this, pa- this uh, sermon's going to be full of cross-references. You might want to get that pen ready. Uh, note those cross-references. I'm going to be going through a number of places to kind of make the point that the passage is making. But let's get some kind of doctrinal hooks to hang our hats on. Anybody still wear hats? Anyone? I don't know. Hooks to hang our coats on, all right? First, let's talk about the security of the believer. Because when you start talking about falling away and people who thought they were in the kingdom but then are judged on the last day as guilty, well, what about the security of the believer? Well, the believer, the true believer, actually is secure. Those whom God saves make it to the end. A couple passages that speak to the security of the believer. John 10, 27 to 29, listen to this. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus said, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Eternal life is forever, by the way. The believer is secured. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. One of the reasons the Bible calls us to praise the Holy Spirit is because He seals the believer so that we all obtain the inheritance that's coming to us. What He starts, He finishes. Now, the Bible also speaks to us being given the power ourselves to persevere. So there's this doctrine called eternal security where God secures those whom He saves and they all make it to glory. There's another doctrine, which is kind of like the same side or a different side of the same coin, the perseverance of the saints. So you could say, ah, that person entered heaven. That person had been secured by God. And you could also say, and they persevered. Philippians 1.6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There will be a completed work, and that's all because of the grace of God working in you. 1 Corinthians 15.10, at the end of our book, Paul says this about his relationship to the other apostles. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. So the reason a saint perseveres is because of the grace of God also. So again, all glory is to Christ here for the eternal security of a believer, for the fact that believer perseveres. 
But then there's another doctrine to hang our jackets on, the doctrine of apostasy. Those who have professed to be in Christ have fallen away from Him. How do we understand that? How does that work with the security of a believer? Listen to Matthew 7, 21 to 25. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. You see the connection between, between eternal security and doing God's will, persevering? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't say, I once knew you, now I don't. He said, I never knew you. There was never real life in Christ. That's the question that needed to be addressed in 1 John. How are these people who are in the Christian community, started in the Christian community, now going away and opposing the work of Christ? 1 John 2.19 is a passage written to help the church understand that. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. They never actually were of us. Matthew 7, 21 to 25, I never knew you. So, looking like you're in the Christian community, saying, uh, yeah, I was baptized into Moses, in the words of our passage. I was baptized into Jesus, in the words of the New Testament. But then you fall away or walk away. That's the doctrine of apostasy. And the Bible would say that you've become an apostate, but you never actually were in Christ. Now, one other hook the call to persevere. There is a call all throughout the New Testament for a saint to persevere, to obey, to love, to continue. There are commands to obey, and that's part of our perseverance. John 8, 31, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in Him, if you continue in my word, you are truly disciples of mine. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 2. Now I make it known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which you are also saved, if, if, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, unless this was not a real belief. So, in this passage, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13, Paul's urging the Corinthian Christians to persevere and to not have a final fall away from Christ, lest they be destroyed. It's a heavy passage. It's a warning passage. So, this morning, three truths to keep us from a final fall. Three truths to keep us from a final fall. First, know that you can be overthrown. Know that you can be overthrown. That's what he's telling the people professing to be Christians in the Corinthian church. Know that you can be overthrown. Verse 1, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. You see the alls there? 
They were all part of this community. They were all part of this group that came out of Egypt. They all passed through the Red Sea. They were all under the pillar of cloud being led by God. They were all saying, we're part of this group. He saved us. All, 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 all. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, and now we start to narrow down the group, with most of them, God was not pleased. So you know with some of them He was. But with most of them, He wasn't pleased, and they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then in verses 6 through 13, you're going to see repeated um, this phrase, as some of them were, as some of them were, as some of them were. So there was this sin that some of them did, another sin that some of them did. So they were all professing to be part of this group that God was leading out. But some of them did this and were destroyed. Some of them did this and were destroyed. So why is he saying this to the New Testament church? Why is he saying this to the church at Corinth? You're all in the group publicly. But be careful that some of you don't do what some of them were doing and they were destroyed. Be careful that some of you don't do this other sin that some of them did and were overthrown. That's what he's saying. Is your profession real? Do you really love Christ? Are you really in Christ? The pillar of cloud is the first example he gives. I do not want you to be unaware, verse 1, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. God led them through the sea, led them by the pillar of cloud, showed them where to go, and they were all part of that. And all were baptized into Moses. All All were brought into his leadership, brought into where he was taking them in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. They, they ate the manna given to them from God, the food that came from heaven that God gave them. They all ate that. So, so you have all these people eating manna, and with this guy over here, God is not pleased. You'll see why. There are a number of sins listed coming up. And with this lady over here, God was pleased. So they're all, in a sense, part of the same group. But when you look closely, God's not pleased, God is pleased. Verse 4, and all ate the same spiritual, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. It's the character of God to provide for his people. And and water oftentimes is a picture of that in the Bible. Where, Where water flows, God is providing the most basic thing you need to live, God's providing it for you. Water points to God's faithfulness, points to God's care, points to God's character. And so with this group in the wilderness, God provided their food from heaven, and God provided their their sustenance in terms of water from the rock. And he points to the rock being Christ. The rock is a picture of Christ. Christ provides all his people need. Christ promised us that we would have fountains of living water when we come to Him. In Ezekiel 47, there's water in the temple. In Revelation 22, there's water flowing from the throne, from the new Jerusalem. There's provision. All that we need is perfectly going to be in heaven. But right now, God is still providing for His people. God provides. Nevertheless, that nevertheless is is the turn there, right? 
They were all, under Mo- all baptized into Moses, all under the cloud. They all ate the food from heaven. They all drank the, sp- the, the water from God. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They had a final fall, a destruction, some synonyms for overthrow. They were laid low. Now, for us, we just kind of think of laying down on the ground. That's not what laid low means. Here's another word. They were killed. They were killed in the wilderness. So, all, hey, we're Israelites, those horrible Egyptians. God led us out. But they continued to sin against God, and they were destroyed. So, know, in verses 1 through 5, that you can be overthrown. Listen to Hebrews 10. There are warning, again, there are warning passages all throughout the Bible about presuming on the grace of God. Hebrews 10, 26, heavy passage. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And so it's right here where, where people start to ask, but what about the security of the believer? All true believers have put inside of them the grace of God which allows them to persevere and obey. Now, in real time and space, he's talking to people claiming to be part of the Christian community, and he's saying, hey, don't reject what you've heard. Continue on. So, again, in real time and space, he's, he's making these people make a call, make a determination. And which way you go will then lead to kind of what God has been doing all along. We'll be able to tell this later on. But, but where are you going right now, today, right now? Are you trusting in Christ or are you rejecting Him? And so there are these everyday, real-life, in-the-moment calls for people to trust in Christ. They're all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But here's what does remain, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, now, can I let you in on a little pastoral secret? It is real tempting right now to try to soften the words of Scripture to make you feel comfortable. But we have to hear what God says. The Holy Spirit authored this for us to know. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if you take the Old Testament writings and you say, I reject these, then two or three witnesses, which is like a court case, judgment, two or three witnesses can say, they are astray. So if anyone sets aside the law of Moses, two or three witnesses would show they're gone, they're astray, they're judged. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? You were given grace. Jesus, the Son of God, whom God the Father has loved from all eternity past, bled and died on a cross, suffered for sinners. And if you say, eh, I want this, 
how much more judgment. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. This is what the text says. Know that you can be overthrown. If you presume on what his son has done for you and you determine to reject him and go your own way. You know what? This is good for us to know. It's good for us. When you go to the Grand Canyon, you don't go and play tag with your buddies because you could fall and die. It's good to know of the danger. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Paul is saying this to people who professed faith in Christ in, in Corinth. And Hebrews is written to those professing faith in Christ who are thinking of going back to Judaism because it's just too hard being a Christian in this life. The persecution's too much. Be careful of God and His judgment. Know that you can be overthrown. Now, there's a second truth to keep us from a final fall. Verses 6 to 11, learn from others who were destroyed. Learn from others who were destroyed. 6 through 11 is where he recounts the sins of Israel, and he says these aren't just interesting things to do in a Bible study. Oh, look at how the Israelites fell. No, that's too bad. They're written for us to learn from, is what Paul says. Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. Desiring evil. There are five sins listed in this paragraph. I'm just going to go through them one by one. The first is desiring evil. Setting their hearts on evil things. Now the term is used twice in the Old Testament. Okay? And it's used when they valued... Egypt's food above loyalty to God. So remember, they're brought through the Red Sea, saved. I mean, if you went through that, wouldn't you say, oh my goodness, I will never not trust God again. I will always trust wherever. He, God, lead me wherever you want. I'll trust you. You just made walls of water and led me through and then destroyed my enemies. I will trust you forever. Fast forward two weeks later. Why are we here? What's God doing? Moses, what are you doing? Aaron, what are you doing? I mean, it'd be better off if we were still slaves in Egypt. At least we'd be eating better food. That's what they did. So that term desire evil is written about in Numbers 11.34, specifically when they were wanting things other than what God had given them. So don't let what you want, food, security, comfort, keep you from your loyalty to God. This is what we should learn from Old Testament, those, those people in Old Testament Israel that failed, who desired evil. There are things that we desire. This is such a big part of the Christian life, desires. I would encourage you to regularly ask yourself the question, what do I want right now? You're driving and you're thinking of something someone did and you're angry. Argh! Pause. What do I want right now? justice, revenge, to be well thought. What is it? It's helpful to think through what you want. They wanted food, but that, them wanting the food they had back in Egypt was causing them to be disloyal to God, to fail to trust God. So even in 
non-evil things, we can make the desire for them evil. Idolatry is another one, second part of verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Now again, as I've mentioned before, and I think it's important to say this, whenever you think of idolatry, don't think, oh, I would never do that. I mean, I know it's just a block of wood. I would never do that. Why would they worship a block of wood? Why would they worship a golden calf? Why did people engage in idolatry? I'll give you one word. Security. Security. The other nations bow down to those idols, and they've received rain, and their crops grow. Remember, if it doesn't rain, you don't eat, and famine's a real thing. You don't eat. It doesn't rain, you don't eat. And so these uh, other nations around them all had these gods, and so many of them pointed to fertility and life. So having children, having rain, which produced food, which continued giving you life. So many of these gods were connected to fertility. So it was like, we, we serve the one true and living God, the Israelites would say, but we're also going to hedge our bets by doing what the other nations do because it seems to always work for them. And so worshiping an idol has to do with security. I need this to keep me safe. So we do. We are tempted to idolatry. What do you think you need to keep you safe, comfortable, healthy, whatever it may be? What do you need? What is it? What is it that if it's taken away from you, do you freak out about? Because I need that for my health. I need that for my safety. I need that for my whatever it may be, fulfillment. We are often consumed by things that we want, which we think we need, which will keep us safe and secure. Physical health, education for our children, family, possessions, the list goes on and on. Those things in and of themselves aren't bad, but when we build them up to be more important than they were designed to be. We turn them into false saviors, and it keeps us from trusting and loving the true Savior. We actually war against Him when we don't get those things. You're supposed to be giving me this. Sometimes He takes those things away so that we're brought low, and we think the only person to look to, the only person I need is the person of Christ. Sometimes He removes idols. Don't fall into idolatry. They did. Don't be idolatrous as some of them were. As it is written, he goes on in verse 7, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Now here's the connection between idolatry and sexual immorality. I told you that so many of the gods had to do with life, right? Rain, harvest, physical life, children. So many of the gods had to do with fertility. So in first century Corinth, some of the, so many of these gods uh, were worshipped, and then people would turn to the temple prostitutes in the name of that god, and they would engage in sexual immorality. Literally in Corinth, they would go to the temple, they would eat the meat sacrificed to idols. Maybe it was before the Isthmian Games, the current, uh, kind of like the Olympics. They had the Olympics then, but they had a, another set of games called the Isthmian Games. They would, before the games, go and sacrifice to certain gods and then hope to go and do well in the games. Again, they, they would go to the temple for birthdays, for celebrations. The, the, the idol's temple was such a big social part of 
Corinth. It wasn't just about worshiping idols. Dinners were held there, all of that. It was such a big deal. And they would eat this feast and gluttonies connected to sexual immorality. And you think, why? How's that work? Because they would feast and gorge themselves. And then they would be, um, at the end of the day, at the end of the feast, uh, all the young people were dismissed. And the people of age were able to have sexual interactions with the, the prostitutes of the temple. So idolatry is connected to sexual immorality so often. And so it leads Paul to say, don't just be idolaters as some of them were, verse 7. Then he goes right into that idea. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They did this in the wilderness too. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell, were killed in a single day. It's written for us to understand. They went through this. And so Paul doesn't want the Corinthian Christians to think, or the professing Corinthian Christians even, to think, oh, that, that's the old, that's Israel. That wouldn't happen to us. He's writing this as a warning. Be careful. Learn from others who were destroyed. A fourth sin, not being content with what Christ had given them. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Putting Christ to the test, he's referring to the Numbers 21 situation. Putting Christ to the test, putting God to the test. They complained about wanting different food other than what God had given them. Here the Corinthians wanted to eat meat offered to idols, which gave them social acceptance. So they wanted to have this commitment to Christ, but still keep their social acceptance, their their business success, their familial, familial acceptance by staying in the temple and continuing on in the temple. So they wanted to have both. And that's putting Christ to the test. Will you go all in for Jesus or will you try to have the best of both? Can't do it. You can't love the world and love Christ. You can't have both. Can't love sin and love Christ. You've got to pick one. Don't put Christ to the test. They wanted to say they were followers of God in the Old Testament, but they also complained and wanted something else. Fifth, they grumbled against God and the leaders He gave them. Verse 10, nor grumbled as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. He's referring to Exodus 15, Deuteronomy 1. They grumbled against God and the leaders He had put in place, Moses and Aaron. The people grumbled about God and Moses and Aaron. And Paul is saying they were destroyed. Don't do the same thing. Now, verse 11 wraps it up. Now, these things happen to them, again, second time he's used this phrase, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. The reason that this record of these sins in the Old Testament were preserved was for us to learn from. Think about it. God didn't need to preserve all that happened in the wilderness. Yeah, it's a new era, big deal. Who cares what happened before? No, God saw too that they were written down for us to learn from. These things happened to them as an example, but were written down for our instruction. And then notice this, on whom the end of the ages has come. This is Paul saying, they're written down for us who are in the end times. So those people in previous times sinned and were destroyed, 
And God wrote them down so that we who are now in the end times would take note of this. This is an end times sermon, end times passage. End times living involves not placing any desires above your loyalty to Christ, not engaging in idolatry or wrongly placing value on something that you think you need for security. That's end times living. Not engaging in sexual immorality, it's the end times. Not putting Christ to the test or being discontent with what He's given you, it's the end times. Not grumbling about God or the leaders He's put in your life, it's the end times. Don't do that. This is how not to fall in the end times. Some of you go through the Scripture passage in your small groups. It'd be good to walk through those five sins. Talk through them. It'd be good for you on your own to walk through them and to confess, to repent, to be pointed back to Christ, trusting Christ as you live here in the end times so you don't have this final fall. Learn from others who were destroyed. George Santayana, the famous Spanish-American philosopher, said this, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Those who cannot remember the sins of the Old Testament people may repeat them. Be careful. And this, this helps us with our Bible reading, doesn't it? Sometimes so much of our reading of the Old Testament, or even people in the New Testament, we read of these situations and we go, oh man, bummer for Hymenaeus and Alexander. Learn something from those men. Oh man, that would have been rough to go through in Numbers 21. Learn something from them. There's one preacher, Brian Chappelle, that talks about the fallen human condition, the fallen human condition focus. When you see a sin in the Old Testament, realize that can, be, that can take residence inside you sometimes. So, so learn from it. Don't just read the Bible as just an academic exercise. Oh, I know more things. Where there is sin, beware. Lord, is any of that true of me? Lord, I want to learn from this. Again, 1 Corinthians 10 is said, said twice. These things are written down for an example to us to learn from. So the application, learn from the example. <laughs> Take heed. Now, the third truth to keep us from a final fall, and this is my favorite. Trust in God's faithfulness to keep you. Trust in God's faithfulness to keep you. See, at this point, you might be tempted to think, I, I, I just got to do, 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 do to keep myself secure. No. You need to trust in the faithfulness of God to secure you. When you trust Him, you love Him, guess what flows from that? Obedience. I want to obey God because I trust Him to be the power that keeps me. Trust in God's faithfulness to keep you. Verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So it's kind of a summary of the first two paragraphs. So you, you, you think, you st- oh, I was baptized. I walked an aisle one day. My grandpa was a Christian. I grew up in the church. Careful. Careful. Let anyone who thinks he stands pay attention lest he fall. Again, another word overthrown, destroyed, laid low, fall. 
be careful. Be careful about spiritual pride connected to a group that you're in. Well, I, I grew up going to this guy's church. Well, again, I, I was, you know, I, I signed a thing somewhere, sometime. I'm okay. Be careful. Be careful. I think this speaks to a certain humility, doesn't it? A certain humility when it comes to wanting to honor Christ and continue walking in Him. Um, I, I don't, yeah. We should never have this idea that I'm impervious to all temptation. Um, I'm like this Christian superhero. I cannot be tempted. I cannot fall. I'm good because of this or that. Temptation's a real thing. Our Lord in His humanity went through it and succeeded for us. We get the credit for that. But temptation's a real thing. So part of honoring Christ, following Christ, being faithful to continue following Christ is being humble about the fact that we could fall. Lord, keep me. Don't lead me into a temptation that will cause me to finally fall. Lord, I need you every hour I need you. A couple of months ago, I recommended um, Thomas Brooks' book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. S Satan's going after us. And Brooks wrote this book to talk through the remedies against the darts of Satan. Such a helpful book. Again, I'd encourage you again uh, to, to read that, to maybe read it slowly, meditatively, maybe a little bit at a time. Think through it. It's such a helpful book. There's one part where he exhorts the believer to pray a certain type of humble prayer as Satan we know is tempting us. I'm going to read that for you, a portion of it. Tell God that you have neither skill nor power to escape Satan's snares. Lord, I can't do it on my own. Tell God that it's a work too high and too hard for any created creature to work your own deliverance unless He put you under His everlasting arms. God, I need you to protect me. I can't do this on my own. Tell God how His honor is engaged to stand by you and to bring you all the way that you not be ruined by Satan's plots. God, I, your honor's at stake. Please preserve me to the end for your glory. Tell God how the wicked would triumph if you should fall into Satan's snares. God, if I had a final fall, look at the ground that the enemy would gain. Tell God that. Tell God of the love of Christ, of the blood of Christ, and of the intercession of Christ for you, that a way may be found for you to escape Tell God that if He will make it His honor to save you from falling into Satan's snares, you will make it your glory to speak of His goodness and to live out His kindness. Go to God. God, I am weak. There is nobody in this room that doesn't need to say that. Lord, I am weak. I need you to preserve me. Now listen to the good news. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, that is not common to man. What do we think he's talking about there? Probably the Old Testament people he's, he's been pointing us to. The same things they went through, 
are the same things you're going through. You think, oh my goodness, this temptation is too big, too great. Sexual immorality, idolatry, I'm nervous about my life and I need security. They went through the same thing. No temptation's overtaken you that is not common to man. These three words, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. So no one can ever say, God, this temptation is too big for me. Maybe on your own, yes, but with him, no, it's not. Next phrase, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. So one of, this passage is showing us how God is faithful. We throw that term around a lot. It's true. God is faithful. Here's an explanation of how. There's always a side door to escape from. There's always a way out. You watch some of those movies, like there's a car chase, and then all of a sudden it, you know, someone's ejected from the car. Now there's a foot chase and foot pursuit and going down an alley, and the good guy's kind of going down the alley, and the bad guys are chasing, and all of a sudden he's cornered. What to do? And then Spider-Man swoops in and grabs it up, you know, whatever. You might feel pressed all around with temptation. God is faithful. There is always a way out. There's always a place to flee from. There's always a brother or sister who will come to your rescue. There's always, there's always a way out. Why? Because God's faithful. The character of God is why there's a way out. God's faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. And then notice this, so that you may be able to endure it. So uh, the, the work of our Christian life is God's work. When I get to heaven, if someone says, hey, perseverance of the saints, you persevered, I'm going to say, he, persev- he gave me the power to persevere. The glory's his, not mine. He gets the glory. But notice how Paul phrases it. God's faithful. He'll provide the way of escape so that you can endure. That's why so much, even in the book of Revelation, there's a call to endure, 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 endure. So how do you endure? It's not disconnected from God. Okay, I'm going to grip my teeth and endure. No. I'm going to look to my God who's faithful and who gives me the resource of prayer so that I can tell him, God, I'm weak. I need you to be strong. And he loves to answer those prayers. God's going to give us the ability to endure by giving us his word. I need need strength. I need to hear what you say, God, if I'm going to endure this. God gives us one another. Iron sharpens iron, so one brother sharpens another. He gives us one another to endure. He gives us his spirit to endure, the spirit of Jesus inside of us. He gives us warnings to endure, warnings for the sake of prompting us to think and then continue enduring. And all of that is because he's faithful and he's behind it all. God's power is why we endure, and God provides power. Trust in God's faithfulness to keep you. So let me wrap this all up because here's one of my fears this morning someone will go out of here and try to persevere without god okay i'm going to grip my teeth and not be like the old testament saints 
I'm going to do this. And I'm going to keep myself. I'm going to secure myself. No, no, he secures you. But he does it through your obedience, but you've got to start with him. You start with him. So the starting place is you trust in God. And as John Newton says, when you trust in God, you will love him. When you trust in God, you will love him because you see him working for you and you love him for that. And then what happens when we love, love God? What happens when we love Christ? If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. If you love me, you won't fall into idolatry. If you love me, you will shepherd your desires. If you love me, you will not put me to the test. We trust in him. Therefore, we love him as we see all of his strength toward us and for us. And then we seek to obey him. So please make your starting point to be trusting in God. Don't just start with the activity, the doing, the repenting. The, okay, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to, no, no. Who's giving you the source of strength? Who are you going to and saying you're needy? Who are you worshiping saying, God, I know you're going to bring me home? God, I feel like I could fall bring me home. You got to go to him. Trust in him. I hope your hearts can find rest there. If I can sum it up in a, in a couple sentences. God, my soul's at rest when I think of eternity because you say you will bring me home. Let that manifest in my life as I repent, pray, shepherd my desires, flee from idolatry, but I'm resting all of that in your care of me. Rest. Rest. So we need to have both, right? The call to endure and the trust in our God who's faithful to us. Trust in God. Let everything flow from that. Let's pray. Father, keep every single person here from apostasy. We collectively need you desperately. We are all prone to follow Israel's example. We're all prone to idolatry, desire for sexual immorality. We're all prone to complaining about you and the leaders you put over us. We're prone to question your care of us. And we're prone to be less than loyal to you. So would you keep us trusting in you? Would you keep us knowing and loving you? Father, would you help our hearts to be at rest knowing that what you've started, you will complete. And every day, day by day, going to you, asking you for strength and help, which are prayers that you love to answer. So we rest in you, Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.